I want to take us this morning into the garden. Gardens are significant in the Bible. In fact, some of the best things in the Bible happen in gardens, but some of the worst things in the Bible also happen in gardens. The story of humanity begins in a garden. A garden that was filled with everything good, food and beauty, resources and protection, but most of all, it was filled with the good presence of God, the source of all life and joy and satisfaction. It was in that garden that God gave Adam, the first man, Clear instructions. Everything in the garden was his to enjoy, but there was one thing he could not do. He could not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God sets good boundaries that are necessary to experience his good blessings. And the garden, as a result, was a place where life was intended to thrive and flourish in the joy of worshipful obedience to God. And there, in that first garden, in Eden, the first man, Adam, lived for what appears to be only a brief period of time. It was in that garden that God had tested Adam's faith and Adam's faithfulness, testing his love and testing his obedience. Ultimately, he was testing Adam's worship. And in that first garden, Adam failed the test. In the place of life and joy that God had created for man to thrive was suddenly filled with death and with shame. And God had warned that this would happen if they disobeyed him. He warned that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would surely die. And they did. The curse of sin fell upon the earth. Humanity was plunged in that moment into sin, and the result would be physical death, yes. But greater than that would be the spiritual death that Adam and Eve and all of humanity would now experience. They would experience a spiritual death defined as separation from the presence of God's blessing, alienation from the God of life. Because of sin, they were expelled from the garden and they were sent into exile. But here on Good Friday... As we read the scriptures, what we see is that there is another man, a second Adam, who enters into another garden, not Eden, but Gethsemane. He doesn't enter into its beauty, he enters into its horror. 
And in this garden, the second Adam, just like the first, would be tested. His faith and his faithfulness, his obedience and his worship. The Gospel of Mark records this account in chapter 14. In in verse 32, it tells us, And they, speaking of the disciples with Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He enters into this garden with his disciples. He asks them to stay so that he can move to a place of solitude and silence where he can be alone with God. And you know, when we think about Jesus, we often think of him in this sort of peaceful and serene kind of way. He seems like this man who is unshakable, this unshakable faith, who never struggles with fear or worry, who never doubts or questions, who has simply unflinching resolve. He is, after all, the man who set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die. We picture him in this garden, maybe some of us do, praying rather stoically. But Mark paints a very different picture. In fact, in verse 33 and following, it says this, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and notice this, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34 says that his soul was very sorrowful, even to death. And in verse 35, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed. Luke, in the parallel account, tells us that Jesus first fell to his knees, and Matthew expands on this and says that he eventually fell flat to his face. Here is a man with the weight of the world upon his shoulders. Here is a man with the weight of heaven and hell upon his shoulders, flat on his face, crying out to God in desperate prayer. Then there was that other man, Adam, in that other garden, With the weight of the world and heaven and hell upon his shoulders. There, that first Adam watched silently as his wife Eve was being interrogated and tempted by the great serpent Satan. It was there in that first garden that the word and will of God were being doubted, distorted, and denied. It was there that Adam and Eve were convinced that they didn't need God, that they could be God, and in a moment of weakness, they lost all sight of God. Adam faced this temptation, this test And he too would fall flat on his face, but not in prayer, in sin. And he would not be alone. Since Adam 
with the promise that one was going to come and eventually crush the head of the serpent. One was going to come who was going to restore what was lost in Eden. There have been many kinds of Adams, people like Adam. Noah follows closely on the heels of Adam, a gardener like Adam. He is a man of the soil, the text tells us. But like Adam, his forefather, he too takes the fruit in sins and lies naked and ashamed. Israel... The great nation chosen by God to be a light to the nations is called in Exodus chapter 3, God's son. Maybe Israel will be able to do what Adam could not do. Maybe they will be faithful and obedient. Jeremiah 2.21, God says this. He says, I planted you, a choice vine, speaking of Israel, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And throughout the course of biblical and human history, no one has passed the test of perfect obedience to the word and will of the Father. Every single human being faltered. Everyone failed. Everyone was under the curse of the fall of the first Adam. There was no one and there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one could overcome the effects of the fall and defeat our greatest enemy, sin and death. And this, listen, this explains our world. This explains all of the tragedy, all of the pain, all of the evil, all of the war, all of the famine, all of the sickness. All, all of this is explained by the single act of unfaithfulness in a garden. It explains our own hearts. It explains our own personal struggle with sin, our own refusal at times and failure to obey God, to love God with all of our heart, to worship him alone. It explains the human problem. You see, sin and death are familiar friends and fatal foes. We resonate with the disciples in this passage. If we were to read on, we would see that they're so weak, they're told to, to wait, to watch, and to pray, lest they fall into temptation. But they're so weak, they fall asleep, they're so easily tempted. All of us, all of humanity, the Bible says, without God, without hope in the world, we are separated and alienated from God because of our sin. And the biggest predicament of all is that not one of us has the ability to save ourselves. And up until the moment of Jesus, this moment in the garden, no one was able to overcome. No one able to reverse the curse. No one able to pass the test until here, until right now, in this moment recorded in Mark 14, here in the garden of Gethsemane, the hope of the human race, the promised seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the second Adam. He comes into this garden to be the representative head of a new humanity, of a new creation. 
It is no coincidence that he too must be tempted and tested in a garden. He was tempted already by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. He's brought out into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted to do things Satan's way, not God's way. But his reply in the face of temptation and testing is to double down on the word and will of God. Three times he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Three times responding with the definitive word and will of God. There was no faltering, no flinching, only unwavering faithfulness. He passed that test and Satan fled. He was no unfaithful Israel, no rebellious son turning away from God in the wilderness, but he was the true Israel, the faithful son, trusting God alone in the wilderness. He is the beloved son of God with whom God is well pleased. But would he pass the test that Adam failed? In verse 35 and 36, it says that he had prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Forty days in the wilderness were nothing compared to one hour in Gethsemane. Never, never in human history has a man prayed facing more temptation than Jesus faced in this garden in this moment. Never has a man prayed awaiting so much suffering. Never has a man prayed with such emotion and anguish. Luke 22 verse 44 records that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. It's a physiological response called hematidrosis. Where under intense pressure and fear, the blood vessels around the glands, the sweat glands in your body, contract and then they rapidly dilate, violently dilate, causing them to rupture and blood then enters into the glands and is secreted through the pores of the skin. His endocrine system knew what was coming. And it is impossible to exaggerate the depth of Jesus' anguish in the garden. I mean, imagine for a moment, you knew your child was going to die later today. Or imagine you knew that a hurricane or a natural disaster was going to wipe out an entire community an hour from now, or that a tragic mass shooting was going to happen at a local school nearby tomorrow. Imagine you knew it was going to happen. That's what Jesus knew was coming, only terribly and eternally worse. Jesus was facing more than death or sadness. He was... Facing God-forsakenness. 
How can, how can he pray this prayer, remove this cup? Christ asked that the cup be taken away because he was truly man and truly God. Why does he pray for another way? Because of the the two things that he saw in the cup. First, it was a cup full of sin. Here, the perfect Son of God, perfect in holiness, never stumbled into sin, never touched sin, never with a sinful thought, only and always pleasing God. Now he stares into the depth of the bitter cup of sin. One author says that he saw all the brutality of a thousand killing fields, all the whoring of earthly civilizations, blasphemy, profanity, a cup brimming with jealousy, hatred, and covetousness, which he must drink. He saw the sin of every person for all time. And he recoils at the horror of having to take it upon himself. Second, he saw that this cup was full of wrath. As sin bearer, he became the very object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Drinking the cup would also make him a curse. Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Gazing into this cup, Jesus saw hell opened for him, and he staggered. No wonder he sweats great drops of blood. No wonder he asks for another way, but there is no other way. And after making his request three times, in fact, as the other gospel writers indicate, after he requests, remove this cup from me, Jesus was not set free from the suffering before him. In fact, just the opposite. After praying in the garden, his closest friends disappoint him. One of his disciples betrays him and all his companions desert him. In all of this anguish, there is unconditional submission. After asking God to remove this cup, he looked at the horror of the cross. He looked it dead in the eyes and he declares in verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, this is the garden where Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful Son of God, in perfect relationship with his Father, did not get his request granted, at least not his first one. The cup was not taken from him. The wrath would not be satisfied another way. 
God could not sweep sin under a rug. He can't wink at sin. He must punish sin. His holiness and divine justice demands that sin be punished. Jesus could not avoid the horror of the cross if anybody was to be saved from the horrors of hell. He must receive hell in their place. God's will would be done, not the way Jesus had hoped, but the way he was willing for it to be. The first Adam in that first garden declared, not your will be done, but mine. And he plunged humanity into sin and death. The second Adam in this second garden declared, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he was plunged into sin and death for humanity. Jesus did not flee and hide like the first Adam in nakedness and shame. Instead, he willingly carried his cross up that hill to Calvary so he could openly hang naked and ashamed for us. He did not open his mouth and defend himself like the first Adam did in that first garden, but silently he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He did not work the ground by the sweat of his brow, but instead he fell to the ground and sweat great drops of blood. He did not try to take the crown from the head of God like the first Adam, but instead he took the crown of thorns and bore the curse of sin and wrath of God. He did not take the fruit of the tree in prideful rebellion, but instead was hung upon a tree in perfect obedience. This is why it is Good Friday. He passed the test. He drank the cup down to the dregs, and with his final breath, he declared, it is finished. He took it all. And where the first Adam failed, and all the others in between, Jesus succeeds. He passed the test for you and for me. He did what we could never do so that we could have what we would never deserve, forgiveness from our sins, life in Christ. And if today you turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he died in your place, if you believe that he is God, come in the flesh, that he lived, but that he died for you, that he took the full weight of God's wrath in your place. If you believe that, if you confess your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you too can be saved and set free from the power and penalty of sin.